friends. Thanks for joining us today for episode three of Saving Face, a podcast dedicated to breaking the stigma around sharing hard to tell stories. I'm Ida and I'll be your host for the series. For our first season, we're asking eight creatives to dive into some of their most difficult personal experiences, many of which are often rooted in trauma and shame. Throughout each episode, we'll explore the ways these experiences have impacted their work and give our guests the space to reframe these stories as moments of growth, forgiveness, and love. Today, we're speaking with Adrian Octavius Walker, a mixed media artist currently based in St. Louis, Missouri. I am Adrian Octavius Walker. Um, Chicago, Illinois is currently where I live. I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri. I met Ida in Oakland, California when I lived there. I was there for four and a half years. I'm a creative photographer, husband, dad, connector. I think I'm a cool person. Yeah, I mean, I think you are. <laughs> I first met Adrian in 2017 at the legendary Betty Ono Gallery in Oakland, where we were both living at the time. I was covering Black Women Over Breathing, a show he co-founded with Daniel McCoy to emphasize the historically underrepresented importance of Black women in our everyday lives. The arts community in the Bay is small, though, and I ran into Adrian again about a year later for the opening of We Matter, a photo series that has come to define much of Adrian's contemporary career. When it debuted at a group show at San Francisco's Southern Exposure Gallery in 2018, We Matter caught everyone's attention. And for good reason. In both visuals and meaning, the series is simply stunning. The photographs feature sharp, brightly lit portraits of Black men wearing colorful velvet do-rags as they stare piercingly into the camera. The images have this irresistible way of creating intimacy, even in a crowded space. And I still remember audience members crowding around his work that opening night, gravitating towards the portraits the minute they entered the gallery. Adrian and I chatted about the work for Juxtapose later that year, and he told me then that he wanted to create We Matter to interrogate the American socialization of the Black male identity. His goal was to make a photo series that undeniably evoked empathy. When I think about We Matter, that body of work talked about the, the ways the society looks at a Black man and how we are claimed to be based off of something that we're literally wearing on our heads or could be wearing on our heads. Using do-rags as a symbol throughout the images, he hoped to show a vulnerability that pushed viewers to refute the threats often assigned to Black men in society. That's basically what that work is about. And it can, we can end up being killed <laughs> because we look a certain way or because we have on a certain something, you know what I'm saying? And that's the end of it, you know, just being looked at as a threat. Over the last few years, the series hasn't stopped gaining traction. It helped Adrian launch his first solo exhibit in his hometown, St. Louis, kickstarted numerous collaborations and speaking opportunities, and even landed him a spot in the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery as a finalist of the gallery's triennial Outwin Portrait Competition in 2019. As long as I've known Adrian, I found that there's a strong, undeniable presence running through every single one of his pieces. That energy is partly due to his immense talent, of course, 
but part of it also comes from deep passion for documenting life as a photographer, something that goes all the way back to his childhood in Missouri. Growing up in St. Louis, I went to, I grew up on the north side, and I went to an all-black elementary school. It was a public school, so I was a part of the public school system. And I don't know, it's kind of like, I always say that I was just like the curious child growing up, growing up in a pretty rough neighborhood, but I never really got, I didn't get into trouble or nothing like that. I didn't really hang out. I didn't hang out with that crew of folks, but I knew them. They knew me and like everything was like cool. We were all tight, but I saw a lot of stuff at an early age, you know what I'm saying? Growing up where I was at. And I think that's kind of like what got me into photography. That's pretty much what turned me. It's like based, based off of me, me having a photographic memory and just mm. thinking of things that I saw or remember back when I was a child, I think that's what made me become the photographer as a visual person telling these mm -hmm. visual stories, these narratives. And, you know, I just, I vividly, I vividly remember so many things from playing outdoors with friends to those friends who like we were literally playing like a child's game and then they'd be like, hey, we're about to go steal this car. You want to come? I'm like, no, I'm cool on that, y'all. But uh, y'all have fun. Be safe. And it's literally like they go do it and they come back. It's like it was just a wild north. You know what I'm saying? And it's weird because to say like these, cause it's weird to say these were good kids when they just went out and did crazy ass stuff like that. But they were cool mm -hmm. kids. They just, like, I guess mischiefs is a good word to say for them. But, I mean, you'll totally go, go to jail for some of the car, obviously, enjoy riding the shit out of it. But mm -hmm. anyways, um, even thinking about that, you know what I'm saying, and kind of thinking about the friends that I had to think, like, where they are now. I actually was just talking to one on Instagram um, randomly. He's a chef. And... He's in St. Louis. He's thriving in the food world, you know, asking me where I am. And it's crazy because he's never left St. Louis, like literally only never left St. Louis. Like he's never traveled outside of St. Louis. Wow. And that's one thing about St. Louis that is, it's crazy because a lot of my family, they didn't leave St. Louis or they have never left St. Louis either. Wow. See, that's crazy. I feel like that's such an interesting almost like very intense place to grow up. Like you have this whole microcosm of a world that is so full, but at the same time, like is so insular. And I don't know, I think it's interesting to hear you talk about your youth and how you kind of like observed all these really intense things happening, almost like an outsider. Did you feel that way? Yeah. I mean, I didn't feel like an outsider because I was a part of it. You know what I'm saying? The whole like product of my environment type feels, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I just knew, I literally knew right from wrong. Like I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to get fucked up. You know what I'm saying? I didn't want none of that stuff to happen to me. So it's just kind of like knowing the outcomes of things and just like bypassing it. You know what I'm saying? So it, it was just kind of like a lot of surreal stuff happening in my life. And a lot mm -hmm. of surreal stuff that I know about other people that happened in their lives, I just didn't want it to happen to me. 
In our first episode with Ivy, we dove deep into the idea of survival and how immigrant communities or communities of color often adopt a survivalist mindset to cope with an environment that doesn't feel safe or secure. From what Adrian's telling me, he did the same for a lot of his own childhood. I used to think about death a lot as a kid. I'm talking about like four, five, six years old, thinking about that type of stuff. You know what I'm saying? I used to like literally like cry myself to sleep or I couldn't go to sleep because I would think about where, like when I, I thought about, when I thought about death, I didn't think about how would I die. I mostly thought about I didn't want to. And so I would literally be scared to go to sleep thinking, like, what if I didn't get up? Is that because of the environment that you were in? I mean, it had to be. I remember I remember having this, oh, man, it was this carnival that was on the north side. I saw this when I was, like, 11 or, yeah, 10 and a half, 11 or something like that, yeah. And um, I went by myself. I don't know why I went to this carnival by myself. I don't know where everybody was at, but I went by myself. And this was when um, <laughs> this was when South Park was popping, I believe. <laughs> like um, the cartoon. Yeah. And I won a Cartman doll from throwing the darts at the uh, balloons and all this type of stuff. And I was walking home. It was probably like going on like seven o'clock or something like that. It was it was getting late because the sun was coming down, going down. And um, there's this spot called the Packing House uh, that used to be, like, near my uh, home back in the day, back in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, as I was walking home, I saw a bunch of people, ambulance, police, all this, just, like, sur- like inside the Packing House parking lot. So I ran over there. Well, I didn't really run. I was I had to walk that direction to get home. But I kind of like slithered my way through the crowds to see everybody and what they were surrounding and who they were surrounding. It was literally a security guard laying on the ground. Like, and he had, it was, he had got shot and it went through one ear and came out the other. Oh my God. And I was just like, literally like standing there, like looking Mm -hmm. like, I don't even know if I was shocked. I don't even know what was going on in my head, but I just walked, I just went back home and I didn't tell anybody that I saw this for years. Wow. Wow. I feel like that is so traumatic. It is pretty wild, but I didn't dream about it. I didn't have nightmares. Um, it, I don't, it, it didn't, it didn't do, I don't know what, happened or what was going on in my mind for me to not be sad or mm-hmm. I, I obviously was sad but I I didn't know who this man was or what happened you know I didn't think like but I just knew I knew where I lived and I knew like this type of stuff happens all the time my mom actually passed away when I was young. I was 10 years old. She passed away from aneurysm. And for me, I was just like always thinking about this happening to me or the what ifs or what does it feel like? Where do we go? Like type thing. And it's kind of like crazy that this is all like as I grow older, 
and think about this and reflect on it more, it's kind of crazy to see like people around me that have passed away or it's just kind of like thinking about my mom as an older as an older person because I was really really close to my mom as a, as a youngin but like you know I have my dad I have my sisters and my brothers and stuff who are all older than me it's kind of like they're living they're living through me with all the things that I've accomplished and done even though he's spoken before about the impact his childhood has had on his work Adrian has only recently started diving deeper into his intense experience with death growing up. He says that much of this exploration is inspired by themes in his more recent projects, like his collaboration with fellow St. Louis artist Basil Kincaid in 2019. The project, titled Shaman's Death, is a visual phenomenon of swooping, variegated quilts that sharply contrast with traditional white gallery walls. Basil makes um, quilts. He makes quilts and he makes them out of found like materials from pillowcases to other people's like clothing, you name it. And basically it's like he's taking souls and putting and piecing them together. Back in 2019, Basil explained to me over text that the exhibit was a reflection on processes of vulnerability, self-evolution, and the transformative power of love. He reflected on various past relationships and feelings, using fabrics heavy with memory to create a moment of rebirth, as if shedding the quilts like an old second skin or cocoon. That's kind of how he like describes it in a way. You know what I'm saying? They're not quilts. This is actually like, it's... It was used. To, it used to be on human flesh. It's like ancestral. You know what I'm saying. And so that work that he did inspired me on a story of a body of work when I photographed him, when he was wearing a piece from Shaman's Death, and uh, it made me think of Kendrick Lamar's song "Mortal Man," and that song, particular song, talked about survivor's guilt. I don't have survivor's guilt or nothing like that. At least I don't think I have survivor's guilt. But that's kind of like what reminded me, like that song. I, I just remember playing that song over and over and over and over again. I always play that song over and over and over again because of the story. And it just kind of made me think about my past and everything else. When Adrian tells me that, I can't help but wonder if this feeling is actually connected to the loss of his mom at such an early age. How did you feel then when your mom passed away? I was super sad. You know what I'm saying? Um, it really, it bothered me a lot because like knowing like this is what I thought about, you know, as a young person. And then now it happens to somebody that was super close to me. And just kind of like the fact that I would never see her again. Like also just don't know where she ended up going. And also a question like why? You know what I'm saying? Like, why does she have to go, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but, like, as I got older and started to understand, like, you know, she had an aneurysm, where that stems from, also thinking about what she went through as a, as a mother. Mm -hmm. um, not not going to say it made sense, but she was just really, really sick. 
And this is a part where you, this is a thing when you think about mental health. You know, I didn't I didn't know what mental health was as a young person. And then being introduced more and more and talking about it as I got older, probably like a little bit after college, you know what I'm saying, I guess. I wasn't mm-hmm. even really mm-hmm. thinking about like it then, you know what I'm saying, like protect your mental, all this type of stuff. I just knew at times where I just kind of like find myself getting frustrated at a lot of things that I couldn't control. And, you know, so I didn't go out on a rage or nothing like that. I just was like, just upset. And then, you know, oftentimes just cry about it until I felt better. And then I'd be okay, you know, but Mm -hmm. not knowing that that's what my mom was doing too, you know, and she was Mm -hmm. just super stressed over stuff out of her control and wanting to be in control of not, not everything in or anybody is just in control of paying bills or in control of just making sure everybody else is taken care of, you know what I'm saying? Stuff like that. Right, right. I think that's the parallel that you realized is so like Im- touching. Like it's so emotional to me cuz like sometimes we don't we don't realize all the things our parents go through, you know, until like we're older and we achieve that level of like understanding because they do so much just to keep us going to raise yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I don't, and I don't even think, I don't even think like now I know my dad, he doesn't know half of the stuff that I'm doing, you know? Um, what do you mean? He does like, he, he knows what I'm doing, but at the same time, it's just like, he he often oftentimes my dad is like worried about me mm. uh because i guess he, especially when i like like lost my job you know what i'm saying and mm-hmm. i think he's mostly looking at like what is he going to do now not knowing that i can get paid damn near half of a salary from taking some photos for somebody you know what i'm saying a big brand right and it's like that's that's like unheard of from an old, older person, you know what I'm saying? Especially for somebody who worked like manual labor all their lives, you know what I'm saying? What and did your so dad do? He he used to make brakes and rotors for cars. Oh, I see. You know what I'm saying? Like literally breaking his body down, you know? The juxtaposition between Adrian's life and that of his father's is something we see a lot in our generation. Technology, social media, and increasing flexibility in even corporate workplaces has totally transformed what it means to pursue a non-traditional career path. After Adrian got let go from Visco in 2020, he's been taking massive strides in his career. But sometimes it's tough for him and his father to find shared understanding around that. I think there's a lot of, like, boundaries to cross. And this is common in a lot of Asian families, too, like, where parents don't understand creative endeavors like I I think they just don't get it like they don't get that it can be a living and like a reputable one too you know right right a thousand percent yeah I think that's like what it is and I think they're just kind of scared for us you know what I'm saying especially like you don't have insurance stuff like that like you know we definitely got insurance (laughs) Uh, but it's just like it's just everything like the what ifs you know they rather yeah. they it's almost like they rather slave and have this type of job where they breaking themselves down and knowing that they getting paid every week versus kind of like living this like I'm I'm a creative 
Right. Do you feel like that mentality or that lifestyle impacted your childhood at all? Because it was mostly your dad uh, raising you when you were growing up, right? Uh, I would honestly say it was my sister that was raising me, like, for real, for real. I mean, my dad literally got on a stage after I, like, did this presentation for Teach for America back in high school. And my uh, AP lit teacher called my dad up on stage. He was like, you know... You're you're an awesome man for raising this this wonderful this wonderful guy. And my dad was like, I didn't raise him, he raised himself. And he he mostly said that I think the reason why he said that was because my dad didn't really have to tell me anything. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, I I did a lot on my own as far as like just learning things. He just made sure I was taken care of in a monetary type of way. Our relationship mm-hmm. was always cool. But it wasn't until like two and a half years ago that we said, I love you to each other. Mm, and it was mostly like that. this whole thing with a, a whole, I'm making him proud by just doing what I need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, getting good grades, growing up, getting a good job, getting my own apartment, making my own money, you know, uh, having a family, just just doing things on my own. Right. And we never like really had that conversation as far as like, you know, we love each other or we have love for each other. You know what I'm saying? And I think it <laughs> it, it took me to talk to somebody else about their dad and their relationship for me to, to open up and think about my own relationship with my dad. Right. And it was just kind of like, wow. You know what I'm saying? I, ne- I just never thought about it. Yeah. You know, it, it's so weird. The more and more I think about like families, it's like I'm more close to a lot of friends than my own family. And I don't, it's not like I want that, you know, it's not like I Mm -hmm. want that at all. It's just kind of like, I guess what we bond on, what you bond on with a person. Well, and also like how open they are to building it. That too. Because I think like, yeah, like I think in our communities, there are so many barriers that prevent parents from being open with their children. Like, and going back to like the theme of the podcast, like shame and losing face and all that, like, I think that underlies so many of these interactions we're talking about, right? Like your parents work hard, like my parents work hard. And then like, they think that that's enough. They think that that's the way of showing love. Like, oh, like we don't need to have this convo about our feelings, like, and get deep like that. And I don't know. I think that there's all these barriers of like, oh, like maybe, we can just put these old things away and never talk about them. Right. And it makes us stronger. Right. You just like literally ball it up and just throw it away. Yeah. The hardworking, fiercely independent mentality of Adrian's father ultimately created distance between the two growing up. It prevented them from being open and honest with each other and their emotions. A gap Adrian is just now starting to bridge so many years later. I mean, it wasn't honestly like I just talked to my dad recently about life because he almost lost his life. He had a uh, a minor heart attack. And I don't even know how the hell you call something a minor heart attack when you go under and they have to resuscitate you. The event was almost like a catalyst that helped Adrian open up to his father, allowing him to go deeper than they had in decades. My dad goes to dialysis every other day because he has a failing kidney. Um, so and my dad is much older. My dad is 74. He'll be 75 on the 17th of December of this month. And um, I mean, thank God he's still here. I asked him right off the bat, like, what did you see? What? How was it? Like, what, what, what was dying like? 
And then he just basically said, I recorded the conversation on my iPad, actually, so I'm going to do something with it. I think it's probably like the best work I've done yet. <laughs> That's not even done yet. But um, he was like, it was bright. It was beautiful. He was like, he said he was in a field or something like that. And um, he just said, he just remember waking up and his chest hurting. And I guess his chest is hurting from them pushing at the defibrillator on it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, um, then we talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about the whole, you know, uncomfortable stuff about like, you know, insurance money, what happens, passes and all that type of stuff, whenever it is to happen. Um, we talked about his past. He brought up a lot of stuff in his past saying this wasn't his first time, quote unquote, dying because uh, he was in Vietnam, but Nothing happened in Vietnam. It's just some wild stuff that happened as he was growing up, like him and my mom and my uncle. There was a lot of wild stuff. He said something about him drowning before. Oh, my God. And I was like, I've never heard none of this stuff. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, basically, I said, you're like Mr. Invincible, dude. You know what I'm saying? You're getting all <laughs> these, these chances, like you a cat or something. <laughs> um. But yeah, we talked about a lot of stuff. It was like 28 minutes and it was just like a super long conversation about things that we've never, never talked about. And then again, we ended that conversation saying like, we, we love each other, you know. Oh, that's so beautiful. Like that you guys were able to access that. And even if it was such like, um, you know, a hard event that happened, like him having a heart attack, like it's still amazing that it opened up the door for you two to be so open with each other. Cause I yeah. feel like that's so important. Yeah. And it's just kind of like taught me, like, I don't want to wait long at all to talk about anything. So especially with having a kid now, the only thing I could think about is just like always just kind of being open with her and talking to her. I think honestly, like I, I'm learn I learned a lot of being open with my own wife, you know, because at one point it was just kind of hard for me to talk about a lot of stuff with her. And this is a person I spend every day with and having to go to couples therapy and stuff like that for like situations and stuff that we went through and mm-hmm. just growing, you know what I'm saying? Growing and learning and unlearning and just kind of like just going through the motions and yeah. Yeah, like what has fatherhood been like? I feel like that is so crazy that you have a child. I always say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a challenging thing, but it's like the most loving thing at the same time, especially when you're doing it with somebody. Um, and you're growing together. Like every time I say something to Emery, like, in a, like I should have worded it differently and Morgan would correct me. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. grateful for those moments because if Morgan wasn't there and I said something in a way that she's going, Emory would grow up thinking like that's how it should have been said or like just certain things like that. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like the stressful times where like she's two. Well, she's she'll be three on the third of January. So I don't claim terrible twos. <laughs> I just say. Curious too. They get they more curious. They can she can talk. She talks really really well for her age. She can she's reading like sight words and stuff like that. Like and I feel like we're doing a good job in the household, especially during these times. She's really not around a lot of kids. She does have like mm-hmm. a little friend here, 
named Indigo by our friends uh, Imani and Dez. So we're grateful to be around them. But uh, yeah, I used to say like I only wanted one kid, and now I'm just kind of like thinking like I'll have another one. Ooh. Because what if Emery don't want kids? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so I wouldn't. I want to. I don't have to have like the biggest family, but I do want to create legacy and seeing like where they can go. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like seeing where that can possibly go. That's that's what I think about often. Like that's what I guess what both me and Morgan been thinking about. I I know I know that's what I've been thinking about. And it just kind of like it'd be. It's like I don't want to be stubborn towards something mm-hmm. that can be much more. Now, as a father himself, Adrian wants to learn from his relationship with his own dad to be the best father he can be for his daughter Emery. I, I I chill with my dad. We watch movies. We talk. We ate with each other. We kind of like bonded on a level of like just friends. I didn't even call my dad dad. I don't call him dad. Not because, I like I said, I don't love him. It's just like we all call him by his first name. It's so weird. Wow. His name is Floyd. His name is Floyd. <laughs> and we all call him Floyd. <laughs> but I called my mom mom. And I was the only one out of my siblings to call her mom. Everybody would call her Clotie. My dad took care of me on a monetary level. And he also, he talked to me and said things to me all the time that stuck with me. But he didn't have to tell me, make sure you go to school. Make sure you get good grades. Mm -hmm. Like he didn't have to tell me those things, Mm -hmm. you know. But he did make sure that I was always okay. Mm -hmm. And so for me, having a child now, it's like I want to do all those things. You know, I want to make sure she's okay in school. I want to make sure she's okay in this life period. I want to ask challenging questions here and there. I'm not going to put her on a spot or nothing like that. And, like, when it comes down to, like, her dating, I'm not going to do the whole chastising shit, man. You know, I just, I think if we teach her now to make good decisions and also kind of, like, make sure that she's in a place where she's around like-minded individuals or something like that. I don't really know how to really maneuver because I was around a lot of shit that influenced a lot of other people, but it just influenced me Mm -hmm. to go that route. You know what I'm saying? So she can be different. She can be totally the opposite of me, Mm -hmm. you know, but let's, let's hope not, you know what I'm saying? Let's hope that she has her own mind. And we, we always say that to her now, be your own person. And then she repeats, be your own person. Like she would say it herself, you know what I'm saying? And so it's just kind of like, I hope that those those sayings stick, mm-hmm. you know? I hope those sayings stick. So that's that's pretty much it. It's just like, I'm going to make sure she's good on all levels, you know? And I think my dad did that, but he did it in another type. He did it his way. Mm-hmm. Now you want to do it your way. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for being here and sharing everything today. I've really appreciated you um, for a long time now, but especially for having this chat with me. That's what's up. I mean, I never talked about this. This is literally the first podcast where I talked about nothing but family or life and not just talk about work. So it was, um, I would say it's like a breath of fresh air um, to get this side from me. Or whatever, not saying that it was hidden, because I would have these type of conversations all the time. But it was definitely refreshing to like reflect on it 
on a podcast live and yeah, get it out there. Of course. Of course. I'm here for that anytime. And I'm here for you. (laughs) Thank you, Adrian. Is there anything else you want to say? Love (laughs) y'all. Thank you all so, so much again for listening to our third episode of Saving Face. I'm Ida, and I hope that you will join us again next week. Until then, take care. Saving Face is brought to you by Newfly Magazine. We'd like to give a special thank you and shout out to Matt Hong, our audio engineer, for making the soundscape for each of our episodes. I'd also like to thank Belinda Mann, who's helped co-produce the series with me, as well as Daniel Fung, who has put together our cover art for each episode. And of course, we'd like to thank our wonderful guests for having the courage and openness to share their stories. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.